evening. It's wonderful to have all of you here tonight. You know, around here, we like to use science to solve problems. And sometimes that means you need an engineer. You know, and engineers look at things with a unique perspective. And what do I mean by that? Well, you know, you've heard the saying that an optimist looks at the glass as being half full, a pessimist looks at the glass as being half empty. Well, the engineer looks at it and says, uh, well, it's a glass that's two times too large. You know, they, <laughs> they've, they've got a solution for everything, don't they? So, well, it's time to hear from a guy that always engineers his glasses to be the right size for the right drink. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. Batteries are amazing. We use batteries all over the place, and it's amazing how much energy a battery can hold. But what if batteries could hold even more energy? And that's what some people at the Tesla Battery Research Group thought. You know, Tesla, they make the cars. Just think, if the batteries could hold more power, then the cars could go further, right? So they've been working on ways to put more energy into a battery. First, I want to start by talking about lithium-ion batteries. This is the kind of battery that really enabled a lot of the amazing smartphones that we have today. Because before, they wouldn't be able to hold enough charge to last all day, for example, with that big screen and everything that they're doing. So these lithium-ion batteries are all over the place. If you uh, look at this diagram, you can see how uh, the lithium ions move from one side of the battery to the other as it discharges, while the, as the electricity is used, and the electrons move across. And then when you charge it, those lithium ions move back to the anode over on the other side. And you can kind of see the carbon scaffolding that they use to hold those lithium ions. And that's kind of the, the way that lithium ion batteries work. Well, these researchers are working on a new idea where they call it an anode-free battery. And they take that carbon scaffolding out. And because of that, they can make the battery smaller. If you take a look at this diagram, down in the corner, uh, on the left side, that's about what a normal lithium-ion battery is like. And then right next to it is their new anode-free battery. And for the same amount of power in that battery, it's much smaller. In fact, it's 60% smaller. And then over to the side, you can see how they have the diagram. If the battery is the same size, then it has 60% more power storage. And then if it's the same um, amount of power, then it's 60% smaller. And uh, so this opens up a lot of possibilities in ways they can do it. And, and then again, at the top, you can see the two batteries. One's their new kind, and then the other's a conventional battery with the same amount of storage. So uh, this is pretty neat technology. Uh, they're still working on it. The one really big problem is they haven't got the charge cycles up to the number that they need for it to be commercial. This battery right now will work up to 200 cycles. That's where you charge it up and then you discharge it. When, when you think about our smartphones, that's almost a year, right, if you charge it every day. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but that's, that's not quite where they want it. So they're still working on it and improving it. But it's made a lot of progress. And it's really exciting because 
the manufacturing technique that they use is almost exactly the same. So all of a sudden, they're going to get that much more power density with the same process that they've been using. Another big thing that they're uh, studying and checking on is the safety. And uh, they have this experiment where uh, they take a nail and they push it through the battery to see what happens. And if you watch this, you can see how uh, it pushes through. And uh, sometimes things happen like that. <laughs> if you watch carefully, you might see a little fire. <laughs> right? And that, that's what I call more bang for your buck right there, <laughs> you know, more, more power storage. Anyway, uh, this isn't a new problem. This is the kind of problems that we've seen with lithium ion batteries. If you don't make them perfectly, then they'll explode in your pocket or something like that. So uh, it's, it's a big deal. And this stuff is so reactive that when they take a charged cell from one of these batteries and they put it in water, then it can actually make fire. If you look at this, they, they drop it in and, and there's a big fireball. It's amazing how much energy is in there. And they have a protective glass and everything and they have to be really careful not to drop them, not to drop them, <laughs> because they'll go off. Whoa. <laughs> Pretty exciting stuff, uh, yeah. So um, they've been studying this and trying to figure out how to make it more safe and things. Uh, but if they can uh, perfect it, you know, you got to have the power density, you got to have the charge cycles, you got to have the safety, and uh, there's one more big one, and it's the weight. If you can get the weight down, then it enables even more applications. In fact, one of their target applications for these new batteries is airplanes, electric powered airplanes. And you know, we have drones and things and you know, w uh, why can't we use the batteries we have? Well, how far do you think you could go on an electric powered airplane? And some of the people who are trying to do this, they're seeing flight times of maybe an hour. And you know, if you put more batteries in, then it gets heavier and you can carry less. And that's not gonna take you across the country, is it? So, uh, we really need a breakthrough in storage, or maybe use hydrogen. <laughs> it might work a lot better than these heavy batteries. Uh, but uh, some researchers at NASA have been thinking about this, and uh, they took the point of view, well, what if we did have enough electricity? Then what would we do? They kind of threw out all of the normal concepts and started thinking, now, instead of having a jet engine that burns, say, kerosene, we could have electric motors. Electric motors can be quite a bit smaller and lighter than a jet engine, and they can be really powerful. So they came up with a new design where they use 14 electric motors on one airplane. And uh, they spread them out across the wing, and because of how they're positioned, they can actually put more air over the wing than you would get just with a normal thrust from a jet or something. And so even though when the plane's moving slower, they can still have more lift from all of those propellers. And because of that, they can make the wing smaller. And you see how narrow that wing looks? They can make the wing smaller, which is actually quite a bit more efficient when the plane is at altitude cruising. And usually we have to make the wing big enough so the plane doesn't stall when they're trying to land. And so when the plane, this plane climbs up to altitude, then it turns off most of those little motors, and it just has the two big motors on the ends of the wing that 
power it during cruise. And they are estimating they can fly with one-fifth the amount of power that a conventional aircraft takes. That's a huge difference. Just think, theoretically, you could go five times as far. And uh, that could make a really, really big difference. In fact, it would make it so you wouldn't need quite as big a battery, would you? So uh, it's a really neat uh, way to open up uh, the possibilities if we can use electric power on the aircraft. And uh, NASA's actually getting ready. They're hoping to do actual test flights of this airplane. They call it the X-57 Maxwell. X-57. Remember the X-57 or the X-planes? Well, this is in that same series. And, and uh, you know, if you have enough power, the right technology, then the sky is the limit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And that's all the tech we have the time for. Thank you. And now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias. Do you get excited when you have problems? What's the matter with you? <laughs> no. Um, no, when you have problems, what do you do? How do you react to them? Uh, it turns out a lot of the inventions and creations in our world came about from challenges or problems that needed solutions. And finally, someone came around that figured out a way to solve that problem. And tonight we're gonna talk about a problem and a solution. And the solution is, drum roll, brrr, the vacuum. <laughs> Yay, all this excitement, it's so good. <clears throat> I was gonna just come up and say, tonight's breakthrough sucks. But that would have been inappropriate. So, I'm not saying that but vacuums do suck in the most appropriate way. So, just so you know. But vacuums, they're quite the, the things. I mean, you know, there's a lot of deep thought you have to put when you think about vacuums. I mean, if you clean a vacuum cleaner, do you become a vacuum cleaner? <laughs> it's deep tonight. <laughs> um, we don't exactly get really excited, usually, with vacuums, do we? I mean, that's probably a sign of adulthood when you get excited about new vacuums. You know you're, you're grown now because you know, it's, with kids it's never like, hey, guess what, your dad's downstairs and he brought you a surprise. What is it, what is it, what is it? A new vacuum. Okay, that parent is lame. Actually, they're pretty cool. <laughs> but, uh, but vacuums, why would they be such a big deal and they're everywhere? Well, if, if we go back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, we started to discover kind of this new thing of we need to keep our houses and our roads and everything more clean and there was dust everywhere. And of course we had the handy dandy broom, okay? But if you can imagine a room that hadn't ever seen a vacuum, okay? Some of you are like, I just go down to Billy's room, okay? <laughs> he vacuums as often as he showers, once a year. Um, <laughs> they needed a way to keep their floors clean and they had things like, you know, the, the broom and the problem with the broom, or a problem with the broom, was it kicks up a lot of dust when you sweep, okay? Now, we're gonna talk about somebody named James Spangler. And from a young age, he was very into wanting to be an inventor. He had a lot of ideas. He would see problems and he would try to think of solutions. And he even, as he started to get a little older, w went so far as to even get some patents on some ideas. But unfortunately, it takes more than just having a good idea. You have to be able to market that. You have to be able to get that off the ground and get people to see the vision of why this invention is important. 
And eventually he decided he wasn't able to do that with his inventions. So he started doing kind of random jobs, okay? And one of his jobs was to be the janitor at a department store at night when they closed. So when it would close, he would go in, he would clean up, and he would clean the floor. And unfortunately, Spangler had asthma. And so when he would try to clean the floor, he had a broom, and he had one of these that they called dust sweepers, and it had a brush in it and a tray, and you would push it forward. You had to go kind of fast, and it would kind of spin this brush thing at the speed that you'd move it, and it would hopefully put the dust in the tray. But a lot of the dust would go in the air. And he would have sometimes 10 to 15 minute cough fits where he had to just sit and cough because it would get so bad. And as he started having these experiences and problems, he thought there's got to be a better way. And he's sitting there and he looks up and there's one of those new fancy ceiling fans. And it used this new magical thing called electricity that was pretty new at the time. And he thought, wow, what if I could make a machine like in this dust sweeper that used that electrical power and spun like that. There's a motor in there spinning. So he ends up getting one of these little motors, kind of like that ceiling fan, and he takes all the, the fan blades off, and he hooks up a leather belt in an eight shape to one of these brushes inside this dust sweeper. And he turns it on, and he starts pushing. He has a broom attached to it, and he starts pushing it. Oh, he doesn't have to really push. It just wants to go, but unfortunately, it's way too powerful for that little tray. And it just, like all the dust comes up. It gets all the dust off the floor and puts it all in the air, so it's really bad. So he kind of goes back to planning and he realizes, okay, I need a way to catch the dust. Okay, so he kind of makes an opening and he, okay, I need a way to have the air go through here. And it can't be into a tray because the air is moving so fast that the dust's gonna go where the air goes. So if the dust, if the air hits the tray, it'll come right back out and so will the dust. So he can't do that, so he thinks of a piece of cloth. You can blow through a piece of cloth, but that dust will get caught. So he gets a very technical item, a pillowcase, <laughs> and he attaches it to the back of that hole. So now it's gonna push it up in. And as he starts testing with it, some of it goes up, but a lot of it just kinda goes everywhere because the air's going out. He needs something to guide it up there. So he attaches a fan with small blades, not as big as a ceiling fan, but smaller blades, inside, up inside behind that spinning brush. And it spins and it sucks all of the air and the dust up and straight into that hole into the bag. And he tries that and it starts to work. And every night he would try different techniques to make it better and better. Got to the point where basically that bag would just go, and obviously it needs to be emptied sometime, and his alarm for when it was time to be emptied was when it popped off, poof, <laughs> time to empty, okay? Um, but it got better and better, and he started to see what the original carpet looked like, because you could actually vacuum something, they didn't call it vacuum at the time, you could actually put this across the floor, it would pick up the dust, and th there was no dust in the air that you had to look through to see the floor, and he was realizing, I've got something. But now what do you do with it? And this, it wasn't something where overnight he had it. It took him nights and nights to refine. He changed the blades, the way that it spun, the way that it moved the air. He changed the opening. He worked with the pillowcase, got a better bag. And eventually he made a product and it looked kind of like this. This is one of those really old ones he had. So we got the dust, uh, the sweeper stick 
we've got the pillowcase bag on the back, we have the spinning brush in the front, and then that motor in the center that turned everything, okay? And this, he, he eventually got it to where he started selling it to a few friends, and it never got off the ground until one of his cousins named Susan was blown away by it, and she, she talked to her husband, and they met with him, and he ended up selling his invention to the Hoovers. <laughs> and they took it, and his William Hoover, her husband, said, hey, I will let you use this vacuum, this new product, for 10 days free. And the world was hooked, uh, or sucked in, um, <laughs> onto this new, new product, because it was different than what anyone had ever seen all through something that, you know, somebody had a problem, and then through finding a solution, and then working with it over and over and over, and getting something that really was something, so, so there had been many other attempts at a vacuum before, until finally Spangler got the first electric vacuum working, so. Never give up on solving problems, and next time your parents say, hey, I got you something, you never know. <laughs> Might be time to be an adult. <laughs> okay. And now, introducing Roger Billings. excited tonight. I learned about these new batteries. That is exciting. Yeah, batteries. Batteries. Yeah. Battery technology is amazing. And I want to thank John for sharing that with us. I, it made me really want a better battery. So uh, when you charge up your cell phone, how long will it work before the battery runs out? I have a friend that has to charge his laptop every 30 minutes. <laughs> Pretty funny when we're having a meeting. He shows up with an extension cord. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I've been giving him a hard time, haven't I? But you know, his battery <laughs> got wore out. And he tells the story of how he wore it out. That's what's really funny. You know, because batteries can only be charged a certain number of times. This is a lithium ion battery, and it, it wore out because it was too many charges. And yet, every year, at least, maybe even every week or month, they come up with better ways to make these batteries and they've improved so much. Um, a few years ago, the idea of making a Tesla car would be like, maybe you can get it to the corner grocery store and back. Yes, you can. And now people travel out of state with it. It's really, really amazing how far it's come. And it's really interesting how far it's gonna go. And the batteries are lasting longer and longer and longer. I was reading about the warranty on a Tesla car battery. It's, it's shocking. The, the technology has just really evolved. So when you charge up a computer or a cell phone, how long would you like it to run? I mean, all day is a good start. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't it be nice if it could run Two days? Mm -hmm, it would. A week? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Someone's saying a month? <laughs> Get real. All right, what if someone had an idea for a battery that would run for a whole year? That starts to get exciting, doesn't it? Sounds like science fiction. But actually, I'm going to show you a, uh, a new battery, too, because John got me all excited about batteries tonight. Wow. Only the battery I'm going to show you runs longer than a year on a single charge. In fact, it's the kind of battery. Now, this really sounds over the top. It's the kind of battery that if you, if you got one in your laptop, and by the way, they don't make them that big yet, but if you got one in your laptop, you would never have to charge your laptop, ever. Would That's that amazing. be neat? Okay, this is called a nuclear diamond battery. Wow. It's kind of fascinating. A lot of people know about nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. They discovered that there are certain rocks, uranium, that they find out in nature, like there's some out in Nevada and different places, deposits of uranium. And if you have a thing called a Geiger counter, a Geiger counter is a thing that measures radioactive um, particles. And so if you've been around where there's a nuclear reactor or something, it, it gets a lot of signals. And, and Geiger counters usually make a noise. So if there's hardly any radiation where you are, it's just chunk, chunk, chunk. And then you get by something that's hot radioactively, it goes and gets really loud. Well, that's because these particles are giving off. If you have a piece of uranium and you put a Geiger counter to it, you get these radioactive decays. And what's happened is uranium atoms are unstable certain isotopes of them, and they break down and give off these particles. Interestingly, if you process the uranium and purify it, get rid of all the dirt that's in there so it's more or less pure uranium, then something interesting happens. The particles that come off one atom hit another atom and make it fit fissure, and so you start getting a chain reaction. And if you have enough particles close enough together, it explodes like a bomb because it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. In a nuclear reactor, you put just this fuel in. We call it fuel, but could be, in a simplified way, could just be uranium. Of course, there's different types, plutonium, et cetera. But think of it as just uranium. And it's in there so close that it really would over, overreact, except you slow it down. And you slow it down by sticking rods of lead down into the middle of the core. And the lead absorbs some of these particles. And so if it's not hot enough, not making enough power to run your city, you pull the lead rods out a little bit. And then more of the particles are hitting other uranium atoms. So it starts to really fish, fissure. It really starts to react. And if it starts reacting too much, you put the rods down in, and it slows it down. That's how a nuclear reactor works. In a way, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier or a nuclear-powered submarine is a reactor that's hooked up to a vehicle. 
And think about it. They have to change the battery, or the, it's not really a battery, but the reactor, they have to refuel it every 25 years. And it isn't completely dead, 25. It's really fascinating that you can have that much power. Well, what if you could somehow take that radioactivity and put it in a battery? Now, you probably don't want to hold up by your face because it would react to you. know, these radioactive particles hurt the human body. We call that radiation sickness. And, and that's one of the big problems. If you're going to make a vehicle like an aircraft carrier or a submarine that runs on a radioactive reaction, then you have to have some very good shielding to protect the people on board from the radioactive particles. If we have a nuclear reactor that's stationary, we have to shield it so that it doesn't make anyone sick with radiation poisoning. Am I making sense so far? Mm -hmm. But think if you could do that with a battery. Now, if you put in a battery in your cell phone and you didn't have it shielded, that would not be good for your health. But if you could shield it, just think. Because you could put the battery in your cell phone and it would run, depending on which kind of radioactive fuel, it could run for 5,000 years without ever needing a charge. So you want to look at this, this, is, this technology. This is being developed by a company in uh, California, Pleasanton. And it came out, to my knowledge, uh, well, it's actually been around for quite a while. There's a project in Russia, and they've been experimenting with it. But uh, the University of Bristol in England published a lot of stuff on this four or five years ago. Let's take a look at this video. Every day, the world is heading towards a cleaner and greener future. One of the most power-rich, clean energy sources is nuclear power. However, nuclear power produces nuclear waste that needs to be stored to protect us and the environment from harm for thousands of years until it becomes safe. At NDB, we asked ourselves, what if we could recycle that into something good? Globally, there are 34 million meter cube of nuclear waste that costs over 100 billion US dollars to manage and dispose of. A lot of this waste is graphite that is used as a moderator and reflector in a nuclear reactor that increases its efficiency. This has in itself become radioactive over the years of being exposed to radiation. This waste is categorized as one of the higher risk radioactive waste Thus, it is one of the most expensive and problematic wastes to store. Radioactive graphite contains C14, a beta-ray-admitting carbon radioisotope that turns into harmless nitrogen, anti-neutrino, and more importantly, an energetic electron. At NDB, we said to ourselves, what if we can harness that energy? Since both graphite and diamond are made of carbon, one could make a radioactive C14 diamond from radioactive C14 graphite. This way, the energetic electrons released from the radioactive decay could scatter and deposit energy to the diamond to generate a shower of electrons, as much as 3,600 electrons on average and up to 11,400 electrons in its track. In other words, it generates electricity on its own. What this means is that we can make a battery that bleeds electricity from recycled waste, saving a tremendous amount of taxpayers' money since we no longer need to store the nuclear waste. 
Best of all, because of its extremely long half-life of 5,700 years, it is in effect a battery that does not run out or need replacing. In addition, because it is coated with a non-radioactive diamond that prevents radiation leaks as well as it being the hardest substance on Earth. It is extremely safe and tamper-proof with no moving parts. It is a clean and green energy solution that when fully used, it will turn into harmless byproducts, effectively self-disposing nuclear waste. NDB plans to go further by making the battery as pure as possible to increase the device output by pure... All right, well, what do you think about that? A battery that will run about 5,000 years I've used two of those in my watch. <laughs> it, it's kind of exciting. Now, uh, realistically, uh, don't expect these showing up on the market tomorrow because there are a lot of problems that need to be solved. But it is kind of inter interesting. You've got that much energy in this radioactive material and it's going to give off its energy for a long, long time. Uh, getting it up to be big enough to run something like a car or a house or, for that matter, even a laptop mm -hmm. is uh, going to take quite a bit of breakthrough and, and research, but it, it's a very, very interesting concept. And just to uh, make my point, I happen to bring something I think you'll like. Oh, yeah? yeah. Oh, they're uh, a girl's best friend. They're diamonds. <laughs> now I don't know if anyone can see these or not, so let's hold them up. A diamond. Uh, where where, oh, where do I put it? <laughs> Come back. So, can you see that? This is a diamond. Yeah, if you hold it against your coat, they can. Yeah, if you hold it against my coat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How about over? No, just kidding. Yeah. You see that? Okay, everybody's seen a diamond. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to show you a picture one you can see a little better in a minute. I've got a whole bunch of them here. And interestingly, uh, diamonds are the, the hardest substance that we have. And, and diamonds have very, very interesting properties, which make them an interesting material to shield these things and interesting for a lot of other things. Um, I'm, I'm kind of really into diamonds. In fact, um, years ago, I got a job making diamonds. Mm -hmm. Right. In fact, I'd like to show you a picture of the machine that I worked on to make the diamonds. Can you see that? Wow. This is called a tetrahedral press. And if, if you can pick out the components there in the middle, there are, there are three rams pointing in. These are hydraulic rams like a jack. And when you put the pressure behind them, they're so big around that they put out enormous pressure and they push into the center. Behind where we can't see it is a fourth one. So in this experiment, there are four rams that come in and they press a sample in the middle at very, very high pressures. <clears throat> and then we would run a large amount of current through it and it would actually make man-made diamonds. Now, I was very fortunate to meet the, the person that invented the first commercial process of being able to make, consistently make man-made diamonds. His name is Dr. H. Tracy Hall. And I'd like to show you a picture of Dr. Hall. Oh. Uh, Dr. Hall had his breakthrough in the 50s working for General Electric 
in Schenectady, New York. And uh, it's kind of a, an interesting story. When he came to the laboratory, they'd already been trying to make diamonds. And they got the, the pressure because of, they had two of these big hydraulic jacks pushing against each other. And they were able to get the pressure up to 500,000 PSI pounds per square inch. Now your tire on your car is going to be around 30 pounds per square inch. This is half a million pounds per square inch. This is starting to approach the pressures in the middle of the earth where the earth makes diamonds. Unfortunately though, they could not consistently make these diamonds and so they, <clears throat> they needed a breakthrough. Remember a half million pounds pressure and he would heat it up to temperatures of 2,000 degrees centigrade, which is like 3,000 oh. something Fahrenheit. Very, very hot. And I'd like to show you a picture of Dr. Hall's invention. Oh, this is called the belt press. And if you look on both sides are those big anvils that push in, that have a lot of pressure. And in the middle is a belt. And Dr. Hall, well, one day was telling me about this particular invention. He said what would happen is when they would push the two tips together to mash the sample, that when the pressure got up around a half a million PSI, the sample would just squirt out the sides. And that's all the pressure they could get. So he said that his invention, in simple yeoman's terms, was to put a ring around it so it couldn't leak out. And he called that ring a belt. Now let's look at that picture again. You see that big fat belt there? And it's, it's big enough to hold the pressure. And he would uh, push both of the ends in with the sample in the middle. And he could get the pressure, instead of at a half a million pounds per square inch, he could get up, up over one and a half million. And when he did that, he was able to consistently make diamonds. Now, for, for those of you that are uh, not remembering chemistry real well, or <laughs> some of you maybe haven't even taken a chemistry class yet, let's talk about diamonds. Have you ever barbecued? Do you mm -hmm. like barbecue? I would, I would enjoy some barbecue tonight. <laughs> barbecue is where you take charcoal, charcoal briskets, and you put them in there, you start it, and as they start to get hot, they glow, they give off heat while they oxidize. Well, that charcoal is carbon. And it's the very, very same carbon that is in diamonds. They say, wait a minute, how can it be this black charcoal at the same time be this transparent, hard, amazing diamond? Charcoal is soft. It's like the lead in a pencil. But diamonds are very, very hard. It'll scratch glass and do a lot of other things. And the answer of what changes it from charcoal to diamonds is very simple. In diamonds, the carbon atoms are just pushed closer together. That's the only difference. If the atoms are pushed closer together, they form these tight bonds. They get to be really good friends. And then it turns into diamonds. And so what you have to do to make diamonds is you have to take charcoal or carbon, could be graphite, 
usually is graphite, it's a little more pure charcoal, all right? And then you put it in these machines that press it over a million pounds pressure and heat it up to 1,000 degrees centigrade, and it starts to react, and the carbons that are in the normal graphite chemical structure push in tighter into the diamond elemental structure. And then, while you're still holding the pressure on there, you turn off the heat and let it cool. That freezes it. Then you take off the pressure, and it stays diamond. Well, I, I really wanted to study under a great scientist when I went to the university. And so one of the first things I did was I started my own research project to find out who were the best scientists at my university. And it didn't take very long to hear about Dr. Hall, the guy that made the first man-made diamond. And he was doing some amazing things with very high pressure, high temperature research. And I was a freshman and I wanted to be part of it. And so I went to his office where I met his secretary, Betty Lewis. And you may be surprised I remember her name, but she remembers mine. <laughs> By the way, just so you'll know what we're dealing with here, uh, can you find a photograph of me back when I was knocking on Dr. Hall's door? It looks something like... It's coming. Ah, oh, there he is. Look at that handsome guy. Yeah. Wow. And as you can tell, if you look closely at this photograph, we didn't have Photoshop back then. <laughs> So we just had to go with the raw, raw image. Um, in fact, do you have another picture? You have the engine picture? There we go. Look at that one. That's me and the hydrogen engine right back in those very, very same days. And as you can see, I have an age to bet. <laughs> but uh, imagine that guy knocking on Dr. Hall's door and this very sweet professional lady, Betty Lewis, explaining to me that Dr. Hall does not hire freshmen to work in his laboratory. He hires graduate students that have gone through four years of college and become very, very smart, and now they're in graduate school getting their doctorate, and they work in his lab then. Please come back in four years. <laughs> did you now, smile at it like say, that? I'll bet you didn't wait. <laughs> yeah. I went back every day. <laughs> he said, I don't think it's been four years yet, but you know, I've been thinking about all the things I could learn, and I think I have an idea. And you know, I wore it down just because I was so persistent. And she said, well, what's your idea? And I said, I will work in his laboratory, and I will sweep floors, I'll empty the garbage, I'll just do whatever he wants me to do, and I don't need to get paid. I'll just do it to see what I can learn. And she laughed, and the next day I came back and he said, okay. <laughs> well, I was really thrilled. And that started a real exciting part of my career, even while I was uh, a freshman. And Dr. Hall, uh, can we pull up his picture again? Dr. Hall is not only an incredible scientist, uh, he's passed away now, but he's also an absolutely amazing man. So we're, I'd like to bring Dr. Hall back up again if we could. There he is. Um, after I started working for him, I was enrolling in a freshman chemistry class. 
And for some reason, the normal teacher of freshman chemistry wasn't available one semester, so they had Dr. Hall teach freshman chemistry, which he didn't normally do because he was kind of like really advanced. And so he taught the more advanced classes. But I, I enrolled for his chemistry class, freshman chemistry class, and I consider it to be one of the most important and favorite courses I took in college. Remember, everything you learn empowers you to be able to do things. And I was a, a chemistry lab assistant in high school. I took chemistry in the 11th grade and the 12th grade. I was the lab assistant. I pretty well knew everything about chemistry there was. <laughs> I had the periodic table memorized. Mm -hmm. I knew that hydrogen was number one. That's right. It was most important. It was interesting. But when I got in Dr. Hall's class, I immediately realized that I knew nothing about chemistry. I mean, everything I knew, I knew, but it didn't even scratch the surface of what there was to learn. And he started telling me and the other students in the class chemistry from his point of view. And that's when I realized that science was more exciting and there was more to explore and more to learn than I ever dreamed before. Now remember, I had built the first hydrogen car in high school and that had helped me win the science fair. And so when he started talking about things that mentioned hydrogen, I really perked up and paid a lot of attention. But he, he said to us one day, take the ideal gas law. Now there is a law that you learn in chemistry, I learned it in high school, it's called the ideal gas law. And it's a simple law, it says, if you have a volume full of a gas and you squeeze it to half the volume, the pressure will double. That makes sense. And I had that memorized. But then Dr. Hall pointed out to us, they call it the ideal gas law. But what they don't always point out in freshman chemistry is we still haven't found a gas that follows that rule. He says the closest gas is hydrogen. But really, it always is a little bit different and for some very interesting and complicated reasons. And it was examples like that that made me realize that my high school chemistry was just to get me ready for the more advanced chemistry of college. And I've learned since college that college was just to get me ready for the more advanced research for life. And here's an interesting truth. Every time we discover something new, invariably, 10 more things pop out to be discovered that we never dreamed. There is so much to this universe that we have to learn. And, and that's exciting because it just grows and grows and grows, and, and I think it's really neat. Well, I want to go back to uh, Dr. Hall for a minute because I learned so much from this man. I, I consider him to be one of the biggest influencers in my life and one of the most positive when it came to science and technology and research. Well, he didn't make me sweep the floors very often, but he gave me a job to run that tetrahedral press to, to make samples for him that he would then study. And I did make diamonds on several occasions. 
when I was there working in his laboratory and he would leave to go to a meeting or a class or something, he had this thing he would often say to me, he says, okay, Roger, I'm going to be gone for about an hour. When I get back, I would like you to have made a perfect diamond, 32 facets. And that was our joke. You see, the diamonds that I was making under his direction in his machine, which he invented, were industrial diamonds. They didn't look all shiny and pretty, and they were little. When we would open the sample, we didn't have a diamond. We had thousands of little teeny diamonds that looked like sand. But they were still valuable because you could use them for grinding material and all kinds of industrial purposes. This diamond is a diamond that is uh, the kind he would tease me about, mm -hmm. in which I always wish I knew how to make it, but we never could, during my time there, be able to make these. And I want to show you uh, just the figure out of Tracy Hall's patent. This is a, a patent that shows that belt that went around those two anvils that pushed in, the, the two hydraulic presses, and the belt kept it from spraying out and it made it so they go from a half million to over a million and a half PSI. And of course, since he worked for General Electric, this patent belonged to General Electric. Okay, well so, when Dr. Hall finished his, his career at General Electric, he went back to the university where he became a professor. And of course he wanted to continue to do research in this field of very high energy. He wanted to make more diamond products and a lot of other things. But the attorneys told him he could not use his own invention because it belonged to the people that he worked for. It belonged to General Electric. And uh, this is another personal story that he shared with me. He said it was, it was really disheartening to think that my, my own invention I couldn't use. But I wasn't about to give up. So what would you do if you were a scientist, an inventor, you'd invented the machine that makes real commercial production of industrial diamonds possible, and then the attorneys say, well, you can't use it for 15, 17 years? That's got to be very, very discouraging. Well, Dr. Hall didn't give up. He went right out and invented a better machine. They had two of these hydraulic jacks pushing together, mashing the sample, had a belt around it, the invention was that belt around it so it wouldn't leak. So he said, what if I used four jacks? And what if the sample in the middle I put in the shape of a tetrahedron? A tetrahedron is a shape that has four sides, and if you look at any one of the sides, it looks like a triangle. And it's kind of a magic shape because if you push all four of them in on a tetrahedron, it adds up the pressure. And since they're all coming from different sides, it can't leak out. Now, it's not a belt, so it didn't violate the GE patent, but it was able to get much higher pressures. So he invented the tetrahedral press, and I'd like to show that to you. Can you see it here? So now you can see the three hydraulic jacks and there's a fourth one back behind there, and they all push into the center, 
and they literally mash that part with millions of pounds of pressure, and that's how they make samples. Now, this machine was uh, before I, I worked for Dr. Hall, and I've never seen it. I've only seen pictures of it, but it, it's kind of like the one that I worked on. Can we go back to the first one there? Uh, this is the more modern version of that same machine, and it's like the one that, uh, uh, that I worked on. And there it is. Oh, it's dimmer than I remember. <laughs> oh, there it is, yeah. Okay, so you can see it's got the four uh, hydraulic rams pushing in. And I keep talking about anvils. Anvils are the tips that go on the end of each of those jacks. The pressure is so great that if you use steel or titanium or something like that, it just crush. And so it's tungsten carbide that those are made out of, and that's part of you have to have those anvils to get that pressure. And then inside was that little thing, kind of like a four-sided pyramid. And we would cut a, would drill a hole through it and put our sample in there. And then around it would put a graphite uh, heating element. And then on the ends would put two strips of tantalum metal. Because tantalum would handle very high current and high temperatures. And those would come out to some of those uh, big jacks and so would hook up the power that we ran through it to make it hot. We'd make it hot by uh, heating up that little cylinder. And we made some really, really neat things. And I want to show you a picture of Dr. Hall later in his life. And you can see on the left is his original uh, tetrahedral press, and on the right is his newer one. Now, while I was working with him, he came out with yet another press only instead of having four jacks, it had six. They pushed in from all six directions, so in the middle, the sample wasn't a tetrahedron, it was a cube. It was like a sugar cube, only a little bit bigger. And uh, it was even higher pressures and more effective and bigger samples than the others. So I, uh, I wanna show the picture of Dr. Hall again, though. This is uh, uh, one of the really, really highly recognized, respected, and great scientists of our time. And I'm very grateful for the influence that he had on my life. Uh, I hold him in the highest degree of, of respect. And I'd like to show you what's happened in more recent years. And a lot of this came about from Dr. Hall's work and from others. But we've learned how to make big diamonds now that are all just one crystal so that we could make them commercially. And they've actually developed two methods of making these. One is with high pressures, and the other one is by growing them at low pressures using hydrogen. Isn't that interesting? Hydrogen is just awesome. Did I tell you that? Yeah. <laughs> with the hydrogen method, they actually make a plasma. A plasma, remember, is when you have a gas that's excited by heat or microwaves usually, and so it kind of glows like a neon sign. We make a plasma with hydrogen and methane. Methane has carbon in it. And you take a very, very tiny seed of diamond and you put it inside the chamber. Then you create this plasma. And without the hydrogen, the carbon atoms on top of the seed would connect with other carbon atoms and it wouldn't grow. It would turn into graphite. But with the hydrogen, the hydrogen ties up those reaction sites, 
And so then the carbon from the methane is applied to the diamond one atom at a time. And so it might take 60 hours to grow a batch of diamonds. But when they're done, they are absolutely pure. And they look something like this. Do you see those? So those are perfect diamonds made out of the same old carbon as the natural diamonds, the same carbon as graphite, and yet they're perfect. There's no impurities. They're very, very strong. And diamonds can be used for all kinds of scientific experiments. Now, if you take one of these diamonds and you try to uh, cut it, it's so hard that you have to cut it just on an angle where it, where it will kind of shear. But what people do is they grind these on a diamond grinder, and they grind them into a very special shape. There are, there are several shapes that they will actually form diamonds into, but the shape that's most interesting, the most popular one, is called the brilliant cut. And it's called brilliant because it has 32 facets on it. That means there's 32 different angles on it. And it's in that famous traditional diamond shape that a lot of you are familiar with. A diamond cut allows light to come in through the face. It goes down and it hits those uh, facets down below and then it reflects and shoots it right back out of the face. So it makes it look like it's on fire. It makes it just sparkle with colors. And it looks something like this. Can you see that? Now that is a perfect laboratory-made diamond. And they can make very big ones and more perfect than even the diamonds that we find from deep in the earth. And now diamonds are being manufactured uh, in great quantities. And they're, they're very, very beautiful. And a lot of technologies are coming out with diamond. They have, for example, uh, a technology that's recently emerged where they shoot a laser beam through the bottom of the diamond and then they shoot little laser beams in at an angle and when they come out it merges the laser beams together and makes them much stronger and there's just so many things that you can do with diamonds diamonds are a very good insulator the carbon atoms are packed so tightly they don't want to give up their electrons and so it's an extremely good insulator for electricity and very conductive so it's a lot of really, really neat things to do. So let's just imagine that these people working on this uh, new technology, these nuclear diamond batteries, let's suppose they get that perfected. Then it would be possible to be able to make a computer that when you buy it, it's charged, and it'll be charged for its whole life. And for that matter, when you finally trade it in for an upgrade, eight years later, they'll take the battery out and put it in another computer because it's got about 5,000 years left to function. And you say that's really crazy, but that's kind of what we're doing with these nuclear vehicles. Mm -hmm. We also have put nuclear reactors in some of our spaceships where we send them way, 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 way out into deep space and the reactors run a long, long time so that they can continue to do their missions. It's actually pretty exciting. So what do you think about that? I think it's really neat. I think the fact that you and 
know Dr. Hall and have all that experience, then the students think, wow, you've, you've had a lot of experience. Well, he is absolutely one of my <laughs> favorite people. And you know, I don't think I would know Dr. Hall if I would just mind my manners. <laughs> because she said no. Yeah. And I just wanted so bad to to watch him at work and to learn from him. And I am so grateful. He really changed my life. Uh, his son, by the way, worked for him too. And his son is one of my dear, dear friends, one of the great, great scientists. And, and I hold him in very high esteem mm -hmm. and high respect too. Well, now I want to shift gears for just a minute. Um, I, I don't know that we're going to get this technology big enough to be able to run something like a laptop. And if we do, it may take 50 years. And some of you, you know, for me, that's nothing. But some of you, that could be a long time. You may not want to wait. But I really am excited about building computers. And I told you that I'm working on being able to make better, more affordable, faster Acellus computers. We have a computer right now we make, which is the Gold Book. And some of you have been writing me little messages about that. Mm -hmm. And do they, they'd be surprised they knew how much I read those messages. They'd be very surprised. I, I kind of get my direction from all those messages that you students are sending in to me. And I'm very, very grateful for it. And what they're telling me is that the Gold Books are too expensive. Mm -hmm. And they are. They're kind of pricey, and I would really like to get that price down. Um, this week, we are doing something up at our factory, not far from here. It's about an hour from this building. Our factory where we manufacture electronic equipment, and the thing we're doing is we're installing a brand new manufacturing line, automated line. And yesterday, I had one of our people up there with their cell phone, take a little video clip to show you the brand new machines. And I'd like to show them to you right now. These are, are just being installed. We have the trainer here train us on this amazing new production line. Can you show it to us? All right, here we are. This is where we print the solder paste on a board. The solder paste goes through little holes in that board. Now watch, you'll see the board come in and it'll pop up underneath there goes okay and then we print the solder paste on because it's going to hold all the parts on when we build it when the board goes out into the pick and place machines these are all brand new they're so fast and it puts all of the parts on the board it builds it and the whole idea is it builds a lot of them very accurately so we can afford to bring the price down isn't it great these are the machines, and look, they're all starting to run. This is the first time for most of them, actually the very first day that they were powered up, so we're exciting. We, we made a very, very large investment in these machines, and I think it's gonna help us be able to make a computer. Now, some of you haven't uh, uh, seen the gold books. Uh, the gold book computers are nice because they have a metal case to make them durable. They're a touch screen. I, tr I tried to have a computer that would be perfect for a Cellus. And the other thing is they're locked down because a lot of people get a computer and then they pick up a virus. And they do it from some of the crazy things they do, like uh, some of the game sites and that have viruses. In fact, a lot of them do. Even some of the 
stores now, like for the Android phone that have, are really struggling with viruses. And I wanted to make some of those really secure. So we locked them down with Gold Key. But I am working on a next generation Gold Book that hopefully will be much more affordable to our students. And I've already named it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, guess what I'm calling it? J3DI. J3DI. And I have a website. It's not up yet, but it's called J3DI.com. So three of the... Yeah, the number three, you know, uh -huh. J3DI. You say, why that name? Well, I don't know. I just think it's a neat name. If you look at the three backwards, it could look like an E. Mm -hmm. And so I just call it Jedi. That's cool. All right, Jedi That's computer. Cool. Can I show it to you? Yes. Here's kind of what it looks like. See that? J3DI. Uh -huh. And uh, if you go to J3DI.com right now, you won't see anything. Although I think I have a message that says, coming soon. <laughs> Could Something. be 10 years, but probably That's sooner no, than the back. At any rate, but um, I do want to leave you with a, a thing. A lot of people said, can't I do something to bring down the cost of these computers? Mm -hmm. And I am working on it. And unfortunately, it's going to take more than a magic wand. I didn't want to have junk computers. I wanted to have really good ones. And our gold books are pretty neat. They're quad-core. They're they're, they're nice little computers, beautiful screens, touch screens, secured already with uh, gold key security. So what I am going to do tonight, for those of you that are making that request to me, if you want a, uh, a gold book while I'm working on the Jedis, uh, you can go to this fellow store and get them. And like some of you said, they're way too expensive. I know they're a good computer. They are expensive. But I... Uh, talk to Mr. David. He's our local Amazon type guy. <laughs> and I said, David, could we give the, the families a discount, you know, the students that need these? And he reminded me that we already had a special 30% discount if you go into the store with a, a Sells Academy or Power Homeschool ID for oh. the parent. You can get that. And I said, wow, 30%, that's pretty good. Could we make it more? More discount. Yeah. And he said, well, we could do 40%. I said, give me 50 and it's a deal. <laughs> so. Did he do it? He, did you do it? David, he did it. Okay. So, but the, the thing is, if you're going to get it, you'll have to, re, you have to do a memorization or make a note. The secret code word to get the half price and this isn't for everybody, this is for people in our little school here, but the the name is, or the secret code is JEDI. Oh, cool. J3DI. Awesome. And if you put that code in, half the price should go away. Does it go away immediately or when you check out? It should show immediately. should show immediately. And if it doesn't, they call you? <laughs> That's right. All right, no, David, well, uh, but for those of you that... Uh, are a little bit not in a hurry and patient. Uh, we're working on the Jedis, and I hope to have them just as soon as we can. Uh, having a good computer to do a Celis really helps, and I, I realize that uh, good computers are kind of pricey. So there it is. Thank you. One more thing. Yes. Um, they're wondering, they meaning the students, 
I'm wondering where they can find your blog now. Oh, yeah. 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 It's hiding. My blog is hiding. Yeah, they noticed. At rogerbillings.com. Okay? And so we put it over there uh -huh. if, if you'd like to find it. Um, another thing that might be a little bit of interest, mm -hmm. do you think it is? I think so. What is it? What is it? I don't know. <laughs> Tell me. What is it? I don't know. You do know. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, there, there are a lot of new things coming to sell us. Um, we're, we're on what I call level three. Yeah. You say, well, what's level three? Well, I made it up. <laughs> it's far, when it's we're higher. this far along, it's, it's all of these plans and things mm -hmm. like live class monitor and the yeah. writing tutor. I hope some of you like that. Mm -hmm. just starting from, A lot of these things are all our level three development projects. Now we're working on level four. Wow. And level four, you know, it's at least a year away, but we have a whole new wave of things that I think are are pretty spectacular. Uh, I really believe in Acellus. I believe in what it's doing. I really believe in Acellus Academy, which is a program that is accredited and targeted for people that want to homeschool, and also Empower Homeschool, which is another program that I'm involved in, which is for parents that are teaching their own children, and they just want the accessibility to Acellus courses. Uh, I want to thank you for, for your support. One of the questions I've been getting a lot is parents are asking, if you're under the, the Roger Billing Scholarship, how do you sign in so you get credit? Right. And uh, I'm going to make that easier uh, so that it will be easy to sign in. Uh, I like to think that there is some value in these lectures we're doing. Mm -hmm. I hope that you're picking up some science, and I think a lot of you are. I hope some of you maybe even become a little interested in science. But the biggest thing that I want to do in this course is help you understand while you're still in school that what you learn is going to empower your lives. And this is so important. Cellus is wonderful, but it only works when you make it work. Keep sending me your good ideas, and uh, it's going to get better and better. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.